Welcome to Truncated Thoughts presented by Prescouter. We focus on big ideas in life science. I'm Jeremy Schmier, and with me is Dr. Ryan LaRanger and Dr. Michael Boat. Today, we're talking about epigenetics and other forms of phenotypic heterogeneity, which in simple terms means that the way our genes work can change. They, cha they can change based on a variety of factors that will be discussed today. In fact, some of these changes are actually reversible, which is probably a good place for me to turn to my colleagues. Michael, can you give us a prelude into these gene changes, mutations, and why they matter? Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, always nice to be on the podcast. So thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, so these are, these are two concepts that are related, but definitely have their differences. So maybe we can start with epigenetics. And epigenetics is really the field of, of science that looks at how can the blueprint of our body's DNA um, be modified to produce a different outcome. And I can make it very simple. There's, for example, uh, modifications that can be made um, to your DNA um, that can prevent a certain product from being made, a certain protein, for instance. And the fun thing is that these processes are not permanent. They're sometimes can take quite a while. Uh, there's examples that these kind of epigenetic changes, as you call them, take years and years. Some of them last seconds only. So it, it can be a temporary modification of your blueprint. And so phenotypic heterogeneity is a slightly different concept, but also speaks to how, for instance, two cells that have the same genetic blueprint can vary beyond what is in their DNA. And so we can dive into that a bit more, but maybe Ryan, you can, uh, you can give some additional insights on, uh, on those concepts. I mean, it's pretty clear by and large. Um, you can just think of it in terms of uh, when we're dealing with certain kinds of systems, this is particularly important, right? Uh, especially with disease and particularly with cancer. Um, but this also shows up with uh, twins, right? And just things at the population level. On the disease level, where uh, hopefully we'll get to, it becomes a question of often our diagnostics uh, for cancers, especially some of our newest ones, are very focused on, do you have, is there a particular gene present? And will that gene confer a level of uh, either resistance to or vulnerability to a particular drug? Um, in lung cancer, um, there have been some really, really interesting uh, developments in terms of drugs targeted to particular mutation types for a tumor. The challenge there is twofold. The first one is there's going to be genetic heterogeneity because tumor cells have uh, almost by definition shut off some degree of their, um, let's say, error checking mechanisms for uh, genetic division, right? So it's going to be heterogeneous. They're not all going to have the same genes um, or they're not all going to have the same mutations. Beyond that, uh, epigenetics, so basically the turning on or the turning off of certain genes in response to something that occurs, uh, can lead to those genes which are driving vulnerability to a particular um, treatment being turned off or turned down during treatment. So my question is, you know, how do we account for these changes in various treatment plans? Is there a 
predictive model? Is there a way to make sure that these things, these mutations won't affect or impact or slow down someone's treatment plan? So I can, I can, I can start answering that. I, I think you asked the million dollar question yeah. for epigenetics <laughs> and, and even more the so idea. For, for phenotypic estrogenity. So, so genetic changes, as, as Ryan said, most of our diagnostics are, are aimed at detecting differences in DNA. And it's like a book. You read a book, you change out a word, you can compare those side by side and say, hey, look, that word is gone. And so th this is the difference. But for epigenetics, as I explained in, in the intro, these things can be very temporal. Um, and oftentimes they're very rare events. And so because of those two issues, you being able to detect that it might be, it might be something like a needle in a haystack with the needle disappearing from time to time. And so there is a huge complexity to detecting those kinds of changes and making sure that you capture and related to disease. So, so Michael, can you talk about the difference in the magnitude of some of these changes? It sounds like if it is a needle in a haystack and maybe they're rare, are they innocuous in some ways or harmless? I mean, is there a, a magnitude or a scale to these changes? That, that's another great question. And, and the, the answer is, I think people that are listening uh, that, that have had a biology classes is the, the biology teacher will always say that it depends. Right? <laughs> and the, but the thing is, it can, be, it can be from extremely subtle to drastic. It could be the difference between a cell stopping growth to hardly noticeable change that only affects a certain small pathway. Um, so it, it can be any kind of amplitude. And of course, the, the, the system or the epigenetic system that exists not only in eukaryotic cells in humans, but also in bacteria, for instance, um, these evolve. So there are certain pressures around these epigenetics, for instance, in bacteria can be the difference between a bacterium that is susceptible to an antibiotic to completely un, uh, not susceptible, so resistant. So there, the, the dramatic effect of that is not noticeable in any normal growth condition, but because we are pushing this uh, with, with antibiotics or trying to combat it, the, the effect becomes astronomical in, in this night and day difference. Does that make sense, Jeremy? Yeah, yeah, I think um, I, I understood at least a quarter of that. Um, <laughs> I, I'd love to get Ryan's perspective too. Oh, well, it's I, I cannot speak to uh, my colleagues' deep understanding of microbes, but uh, taking things perhaps from a slightly different perspective, just on how darn complicated this is. A thing to keep in mind is that when we're talking about an epigenetic modification, we're not just talking about one type, right? There are a series of different processes which can happen uh, from an epigenetic uh, perspective, uh, you know, methylation, uh, histone desylation, etc. Uh, some of them uh, increase the likelihood that a particular gene will be transcribed. Some decrease it. Some turn it off completely. Um, and there are redundancies in these pathways. And so the way that I often, uh, my favorite topic for this, uh, perhaps this is obvious, is cancer, uh, because it's an interesting topic. It, it sort of fits it in, is in line with this narrative that I am trying to build. But uh, the idea 
is there are actually a number of drugs that are in clinical trials which are focused on disrupting the epigenetic modification of DNA in cancer. The hypothesis there is this may prevent uh, those cancer cells from shutting off key genes in response to treatment. And this is the thing that's been shown, right? We know, as far as you can know anything in science, um, that cancers turn down or turn off genes which make them more vulnerable to treatment during treatment, right? And there are a couple of ways to deal with this. Um, one of them is theoretically these sorts of drugs which can prevent the cancer cells from engaging in this defensive operation. Uh, one of my other personal favorites, it's a complete aside, uh, there have been some strategies on intermittent fasting during chemotherapy, which the, that could be a whole topic. But very briefly, um, when you engage in intermittent fasting, um, it changes some gene expression elements, but it impacts cancer in a different way than it does other uh, biological processes. And so it's when you intermittent fast, you turn down the metabolism of your normal cells, but cancer cells don't respond to that anymore. So it can decrease symptoms. So it's sort of a complete reverse of what I was just saying, which is fascinating. Uh, but those are some drugs. They're currently in clinical trials. We're keeping an eye on them. Um, the clinical trials are difficult to do because they almost necessarily need to be with someone who is getting some other kind of chemotherapy to get a good effect. And those clinical trials are a nightmare to run. But that's what I'll say on that topic. I'll let uh, either you or Michael jump in. Yeah, I, actually, I was uh, one thing that came to mind, given this, this, this example you, you, you just mentioned, Ryan, is I think the most famous example is in, in my book of epigenetics is this this World War II famine, right, where oh, there yeah, were yeah. there were mothers in in um, at in the war that were um, poorly fed. Um, mm -hmm. There was a complete uh, lack of, of, of food during that time, and this impacted their unborn babies' um, um, epigenetic profile. And so, these children that were not even born in that time, there they had an epigenetic change that impacted their metabolism. And so they had a tendency to have an altered body uh, mass index profile. So that's, I think, the most sort of popular or extreme example of, of an epigenetic shift that crossed uh, from, from mother to child and lasted um, almost a lifetime. Heritable epigenetics are so wild. I <laughs> so, so are you guys saying that with today's technology, modern medicine, there might have been more ways to reverse some of those potential changes that occurred in a more famine type of world? I think, I think that at least it, we don't understand yet, I think, all the changes that are there, one. So we don't really have a good library of, of the, all the epigenetic changes that lead to disease. Um, but if we would have that, or if we would have better ways to diagnose them more um, I would say more frequently if it would be easier to diagnose them and not throw very expensive essays at them, very difficult purification steps, et cetera, complex analytical tools. It, it would have definitely helped um, to maybe not even change that course, but at least understand it and, and be able to deal with that or anticipate on that. 
I have to give a very brief rant here on drug development. <laughs> it, it won't take long, I promise. So the challenge with something like that is, um, or, and this goes to the challenge of treating cancer generally, but other sorts of things along these lines, the more common a process is, the harder it is to target it with a drug, right? One of the real challenges with dealing with epigenetics and why it's non-trivial to develop drugs that are safe for someone and target epigenetic uh, in any form, ep epigenetic modifications in any form, is that they are also used by the body more generally, right? It's impossible, it's very difficult to make a drug which targets, say, cancer cells and um, their epigenetic components, right? This is part of why combination therapy is important, but to your point, Jeremy, and it's a very good one, let's say we made a drug that could modify whatever the epigenetic modification was, assuming it's only one type, which is hard to assume, um, that impacted, let's say, uh, starvation and sort of the next generation, or just impacted one's propensity towards a certain BMI, like a high one, right? It would be wonderful to make a drug which could uh, change epigenetic states in order to de decrease one's propensity towards higher BMI. That would be amazing. The problem is that making a drug that does this kind of thing would hit every other epigenetic modification of that type and epigenetic modifications of any given type are used to manage a ton of things throughout the body. So I'm not saying it's impossible, as is often my way to be sort of a party pooper at the end of one of these discussions. I'm just saying it would be extremely challenging. Right. Sort of like um, just throwing a little bit too much firepower at something that might be a little too specific. <laughs> Michael, any closing thoughts? I think Ryan is, is absolutely right. Uh, specificity is, is going to be the challenge. Um, I, I do feel uh, as we start understanding more, and especially in combination, for instance, with CRISPR, being able to target a certain drug potentially, that might be one of the avenues where you could make that uh, specificity go up. Um, but but yeah, I, I feel uh, at least for the next few years, Ryan is going to have it at the, the right end here on the under drug discovery. Yeah, I'm going to be right until I'm wrong. And Michael, that's brilliant. I actually love that. <laughs> Excellent, fellas. Um, so, and we will be getting to CRISPR in a future episode for sure. But that is all the time that we have for today and hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. And next time we'll be discussing process analytical technologies. So until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.